You are listening to the teaching series from Jubilee Church entitled Walk. This six-week series through the book of Jude looks at seven pursuits vital to the Christian's life and forward progress in their faith. If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. We've been in this series um, called Walk, and we are looking at the book of Jude, trying to uh, glean what we can about what it means to walk with God. And uh, as Brian has often come up before you guys and confessed that he uses Google for his uh, research and sermons, I, too, uh, decided to play like the big boys. And I got on Google, and uh, you guys have heard the text, and the text uh, that I'm focusing on today is uh, the second half of verse 21, which is basically waiting on the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So I said, okay, I should Google heaven and see what it gives me. And so I got a number of interesting hits. Uh, uh, specifically, uh, I pulled up these two cartoons I want to show you guys. Uh, because if anybody in society has their finger on the pulse of what the modern person is thinking, it's a cartoonist. <laughs> right? They, they write these the cartoons. And typically the, the whole reason that humor works is because you find some, some strange, awkward truth or something that's slightly out of place. But you've got to kind of understand what's going on. So hopefully I can pull up the first cartoon here. Uh, so this is Calvin and Hobbes, one of my personal favorites, and it's a little bit small, so I'm going to read to you kind of what's going on here. Okay, so Calvin and Hobbes are relaxing in a field, and Calvin says to Hobbes, if heaven is good and if I like to be bad, how am I supposed to be happy there? And then Hobbes, well, how will you get into heaven if you like to be bad? Well, let's say I didn't do what I wanted to do, right? Suppose I led a blameless life. Suppose I denied my true dark nature, <laughs> Hobbes. I'm not sure that I have that much imagination. <laughs> Calvin's response is, maybe heaven is a place where you're allowed to be bad. And the next cartoon, uh, this is uh, from Gary Larson in the far side. And you can see that this gentleman here is in heaven, and he's thinking to himself, I wish I'd brought a magazine. So this kind of gets to the fact that, you know, we all wonder, what is heaven really going to be like? What are we going to do there? What are we going to be allowed to do there? Will I fit in? Will I like it? Um, now, even though nine out of ten people who are polled say that they definitely want to go to heaven, they're not really sure if they're going to like it when they get there. Uh, the Gary uh, Larson cartoon sort of shows us that people uh, have these questions about, you know, this perception of us sitting on clouds with angels' wings. Often there's a harp involved. I'm not sure, I'm not sure why. Um, now, recently, uh, Maria Shriver who is a first lady or former first lady of California, wrote a children's book. And in her book, she describes heaven like this. She says, heaven is a beautiful place where you can sit on soft clouds and talk. If you're good throughout your life, then you will get to go there. When your life is finished here on earth, God sends angels down to take you to heaven to be with him. Sounds a lot like the Farsight cartoon, except there's more people there, I guess, because you're talking to them. Um, but the most interesting website that I found was uh, from Time Magazine. So Time Magazine did a telephone interview with the uh, Anglican Bishop of Durham, also known as N.T. Wright, a relatively prominent uh, contemporary theologian. And this is what he has to say about Maria Shriver's depiction of heaven and our common conceptions in modern society. He says that the common view of heaven is a distortion and a serious diminution of Christian hope. So what is life after death really like? 
And why is Jude so interested in it? All right, so Jude is writing to this church. If you've read the chapter, you know that he is uh, very concerned about this church. Uh, he's worried. He says that there are people in this church who are doubting God's plan for their life, doubting God's goodness. There are other people in the church who are choosing lifestyles that are totally opposite and in opposition to uh, the life and message of Jesus Christ. And there are even others who are openly rejecting the teaching that they've received from the apostles and claiming their own spiritual authority, going their own way and leading others astray. And into this situation, Jude sort of injects these sort of six phrases which we're covering in this series, uh, the third of which being this one here, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So the title for today's message is Eye on Eternity. And that being said, let's start at the end, eternal life. What does eternal life have to do with today, with the here and now? Unfortunately, I can't get into all the details about heaven. I could probably preach an entire series on it. Um, but I decided to uh, pick out three things uh, that the Bible tells us about our future in heaven. That is, if you believe in Christ and you've accepted him into your life and he's forgiving your sin. Uh, and I picked these three things because I think that they're truly at the forefront of a biblical perspective on eternity. There are also things that I think we tend to not think about as often as we ought to, or maybe we think a little bit uh, differently or, or, or wrongly than the way that the Bible depicts it. And so I think we have a lot to learn from this. So uh, I think we have the three here. The three are, number one, pleasures forevermore. Number two, realized righteousness. And number three, the end of death. Okay, pleasures forevermore. Now, I'm not sure what pleasures come to your mind when I say that phrase. Uh, I'm not sure I want to know. But uh, most of us, like Calvin in the cartoon, uh, we're wondering, will we even have fun in heaven? Will we even enjoy it? Is it worth being there? Uh, the alternative sounds pretty bad, so I'll choose heaven. But is that where I really want to be? When I was in grade school, I remember uh, that most of our conversations about heaven were um, pretty much focused on things like, oh, we'll play basketball all the time. You know, when I got angel's wings, I'm going to get this nasty dunk. And, like, you can't block me. Oh, yes, I can. I'll have wings too. And, like, oh, if Jesus is there, like, is he going to make every shot? Well, won't we all be making every shot? I mean, this is the kind of stuff that kids talk about, right? And so uh, that's kind of what I figured it would be like. And when we were done playing basketball, we'd have video games all night, every night, and never have to sleep, and then pizza parties, and then that would be it. It would be heaven. It's great. What else could you want? Now, sometimes it's easier to talk about the things that won't be there in heaven than it is to talk about exactly what will be there. I remember when I got to high school, uh, I was preoccupied with cars and the idea like, oh, I'll be in heaven and like, I'll have like all God's riches. I could drive a Maserati on one day and a Lamborghini on Tuesday, and then I can like get a motorcycle on Wednesday, and we could do all this stuff and be great. You know, God lives in a mansion, and he's like making a place for me in his mansion, and I'll have my own mansion, and you can live down the street because you're my best friend, and so on and so forth. All right now, what's interesting is when you look at how the Bible describes heaven, yes, clearly there are plenty of riches in heaven, right? The streets are made of gold. The sea is made of jewels, um, and there's this sort of display of God's splendor through the context of, all, of what we see. But frankly, if you start to think about it, I mean, if gold is everywhere and you use it to pave the street, it's probably not worth that much, right? Because simple law of supply and demand, the more gold there is, if everybody's got it and it's all over the place, it's probably not as big a deal as we think it is. 
And in fact, what the Bible tells us about God's economy in heaven is that you don't need wealth to be there. And in fact, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah gives a prophecy about God, the nature of God, about his character and what it's like to come to him. You don't have to bring your wealth to prove anything to him. You don't have to have wealth to approach him. In fact, Isaiah 55, uh, verse 1 says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. What this shows us is that in God's economy, in his perfect society, it's not about this lavish um, display of wealth, but instead it's about a God who's giving and who draws us in and who meets our needs. And so the pleasure of heaven is probably not sports and dunks and basketballs, and it's probably not cars and gold and jewels. But instead, the pleasure that we find in heaven, as it's depicted in the Bible, is the pleasure we find at a wedding. The marriage of the Lamb, of Jesus Christ to his church. The pleasure that a bride and a groom share after a long engagement. The pleasure of being the maid of honor and standing next to your childhood friend as she finds the love of her life. The pleasure of being with people that you love and sharing in their joy. In fact, the marriage imagery that the Bible uses is, is as old as, well, marriage. <clears throat> the story of the Bible, the story of God and his pursuit of mankind, begins with a marriage, Adam and Eve. And it ends with a marriage, Jesus Christ and his church. Somewhere in the middle, the Apostle Paul gives us this insight about marriage. And he tells us that marriage is like it's a signpost, a foretaste of the future union between God and his people. He says that this is a mystery, but that Christ has revealed it to us. In fact, the whole point of creation and redemption is that God wanted to share himself with you, with us. And he has done everything necessary to make that a reality. Which brings me to the third thing that I used to think would make heaven great. Sex. Don't laugh. Uh, I, I thought that this was a natural progression for young boys, right? So first it's sports, and then it's cars, and then it's girls. And uh, when I realized that uh, there was no human marriage in heaven, uh, I was a little disappointed, you know. Uh, but the biblical viewpoint is one that tells us something much greater, much deeper, that sex is a signpost pointing to the goodness of intimacy. And because the, the thing that actually makes the Christian view of sex, I know that's a little bit funny too, the Christians have a view of sex and think about it, but the thing that makes sex great is that the pleasure doesn't end when the deed is done. That the intimacy that we have in context of marriage is uh, an extension of the experience of sex, of being one, of being joined together. In fact, it's this intimacy that uh, is the most intense joy and experience that we'll have. And this imagery of marriage and sex that the Bible uses and then associates with our relationship with God is meant to point us to the fact that our experience of God in heaven will be deeper and it will be richer and it will last for eternity.
And so in eternity, we look not just to being in heaven with the loved ones that we've lost or the good friends that we have today that we want to be reunited with or uh, someone that we uh, care about, but instead to be connected to a person, Jesus, who has loved us so unconditionally and has paid the ultimate cost, the ultimate price to be with us. And isn't it amazing that the everything creator of the universe wants to have this kind of one flesh relationship with his people, that he knows you, he knows your strengths, he knows your weaknesses, he knows your fears, he knows your joys, yet he wants to draw you into himself in a way that will fulfill your every need and take you into a greater and greater forever um, eternal experience of joy and fulfillment, intimacy, the kind of relationship that we all have longed for and we're all constantly seeking, but we seem so frustrated because we cannot find it. That is the pleasure of heaven. That is pleasures forevermore. So the second thing that I thought about when I thought about heaven was this idea of realized righteousness. So here's a quick poll for the audience here. Who likes shame and guilt? Anybody? Shame and guilt? Now, I figured at least some person would raise their hand just to be funny, but no one's raised their hand, right? Because nobody likes shame and nobody likes guilt. Romans chapter 8 tells us that even the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Futility. That's how I feel when uh, I remember my wife's birthday a week in advance. And I plan to get the gift, and then I forget. And then on the day of, I remember that I didn't have it. Futility is the frustration that you have when you rush out of the office to make it to your little girl's recital, and again, you get caught in traffic and you miss it for the third time. Futility is that churning in your stomach after a fight when you realize you let your temper get the best of you and you said those hurtful things that you thought would make your point but really just drove a wedge in your relationship. Futility. The creation was subjected to futility in hope, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage uh, to corruption to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So we see from Romans that the brokenness in our world that leads to guilt and shame and condemnation has corrupted the whole world. There is nothing that you see that has not been touched by sin, by the curse. And we all have a sense of that, that things aren't the way that they ought to be. But we are powerless to fix it. Yeah, you know, watch a little Oprah, maybe some Dr. Phil, get a self-help book. Maybe we can make some changes. We can polish up the outside. But we know that somehow deep inside we're still flawed. Now, the modern person will tell you that the answer to your guilt problem, to your shame problem, is to rationalize. I mean, no one can really tell you what's right for you or what's wrong for you. It's not really your fault that you haven't figured out your own personal philosophy and that you're still working on those details. You know, this blame game is just a thing that religious people and uh, closed-minded, narrow-minded people are trying to force onto you. You should be free from that. But if like me, you can't do the mental gymnastics to push down the thing you know to be true and the thing you feel 
to be true, then how are you left to deal with your blame and your shame and your guilt? Well, then you self-medicate and try not to think about it. You fill your life with other kinds of pursuits so you can be fulfilled or distracted. But eventually, it creeps back. You know, it's a hard pill to swallow because it's not just external pressure that causes us to feel shame and guilt, to feel flawed. Now, for the Christian, shame and guilt do have a place in our life, but their place is in the past. And this is the good news of the gospel. Not because there's no reason to feel shame and there's no reason to feel guilt, but because Christ promises to remove our shame and our guilt. He doesn't only forgive us today, but he promises to remove our flaws completely at a future time and place when we're reunited with him in a resurrected body in his perfect society in heaven. So we know that today, if you believe in Christ, you put your faith in him, that he has taken your shame and your guilt to the cross, all your screw-ups, all your missteps, uh, all your selfish decisions and hurtful actions, and he's exchanged it for his own clean slate. That was just what we were singing before. He declares us innocent. And this spiritual acquittal that Jesus gives us is this righteousness transferred or imputed is the word that the Bible sometimes uses. It's a legal term. So on paper, legally, blameless. But we still make some mistakes. We still understand and we're struggling with our old self and our old ways and we're still wanting and longing for that time when we'll be perfect. And Christ promises us that. It's great because the Bible tells us that when we have a resurrected body, a new nature, that we'll be like God, like made of the same stuff that God is. In his holiness and his purity, we'll be, we will have left behind our flaws and our mistakes. We experience this inward righteousness, still coming from God, not from ourselves, but it's no, it's no longer just external. It's kind of like if Snapple is made from the best stuff on earth, we'll be made from the best stuff in heaven. Totally new, totally transformed. Spending eternity living out a realized righteousness. All right, third, the end of death. So it would be difficult to give you a sermon about eternal life without somehow talking about death. It's an inevitable part of living on this earth. And, uh, you know, we often try to comfort ourselves by rationalizing it away or just say, oh, well, it's, it's, it's going to happen. It happens to everyone. No big deal. Well, last weekend we, uh, we found out that there's a family from one of our New Frontiers churches uh, who lost their daughter in a car accident. Uh, she was 18. She just graduated from high school. And that uh, thing that we tell ourselves that death is a natural part of life, suddenly rings hollow. Uh, I sat down and I thought a lot about what this family must be going through. Right, The celebration of high school graduation turns into mourning. The hope of a bright future is replaced by sorrow. The pride of their little girl becoming a woman and going out into the world becomes a source of pain. And the finality of it 
is the most devastating part. That's it. That's how her story ends. And now everything has changed for this family. Every future holiday, every future family photo, every gathering, dinner time tomorrow night. It's changed. In six or 12 months, when things have kind of returned to normal, her parents will sit down and they'll glance at a photo hanging on the wall and they'll be reminded of that moment when she was with them and all of it will come rushing back. And they'll realize that it's never going to be normal. Now, I don't have any clever cliches or funny quips to offer this family that would disrespect their daughter's life and invalidate their sense of grief. Um, In fact, I'm pretty sure they don't care what I have to say at all. But I want to, uh, I hope that I could share with them and with you what God has to say about death. So that when they start wondering, <clears throat> where was God when our daughter died? They'll know that the, uh, the word of God has already answered that question for them. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the story of Jesus and Lazarus in John chapter 11. This is a particularly powerful story to me. Um, if you don't know it, I'll recap it quickly. So Jesus is good friends, very, very close friends with this family, uh, brothers, brother and two sisters, uh, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Uh, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha live in Bethany. And in John chapter 11, Jesus is in a, a town not too far away, um, and he receives word that Lazarus is ill. And he says something very paradoxical, very interesting. He says, oh, this won't, uh, this won't end in death. It's no big deal. He stays two more days in this town, and then he says something even more interesting to his disciples. Seemingly out of the blue, he says to them, guys, Lazarus is dead. We should go to Bethany. So they travel to Bethany, and it takes them a couple days. And when they arrive, it's already been four days since Lazarus has been placed in the tomb. And then Jesus says this. He says, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, addressing his disciples, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Let's go to him. Um, they arrive there, and uh, in verse 33, I think we should pick up the story uh, from the text. Jesus runs into the two sisters separate times and points. He sees their sorrow. He sees their weeping. He sees uh, even the, uh, um, the Jews who had come, uh, family members who had gathered around them, their community, uh, all weeping and, and, and carrying this on. I mean, this is several days after the funeral. And it says in verse 33, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the entire Bible, verse 35, but I think it's filled with the most impact. Now, this phrase, deeply moved in his spirit, can also be translated as indignant. Jesus was indignant, which tells us that Jesus feels about death the same way that we feel about death. Death feels unnatural and unjust, and God agrees. Despite the fact that Jesus had raised others to life and um, that he's God, that he knows all things, he even knew that Lazarus was dead. 
when he goes and he sees the way that death has fractured and corrupted the creation and the people that he loves, he is overwhelmed, just like we are overwhelmed. And the great comfort in this text is not that Jesus goes on to raise Lazarus from the dead, because Lazarus eventually dies again. But the great comfort that we have is Jesus' response, that he isn't satisfied with the status quo. And he's willing to set his face like flint and to go to Jerusalem and to be nailed to a cross so that he can defeat death and change your destiny, change my destiny. See, we hate death, and we see that Jesus hates death too. But we're reminded that by the power of God, he has defeated our greatest enemies of Satan, sin, and death. And in Jesus Christ rising from his own grave, he gives us a glimpse of our future, living a resurrected life in a perfect society where God's will is on display and death is no more. The end of death is coming. Pleasures forevermore, realized righteousness, the end of death. These three future promises stand out to me as particularly poignant because, um, but, sorry, but I could go on. I mean, there, I could talk about the endless worship, multicultural, multi-ethnic. I could talk about um, the destruction of God's enemies once and for all. Uh, I could tell you guys about the perfect rule and reign of Christ, as it says the government will be on his shoulders. Justice for all. But let's get back to the text at hand. Jude has already warned his readers that there's a very real danger of punishment for those who abandon the faith and turn to their own ways. But why is he so interested in this phrase, waiting on the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life? How is that the solution or the answer? I think part of the key to understanding the text of Jude is this word wait. So the Greek word here um, is prodeskomai. It's uh, translated uh, wait in this text, and uh, it's used in a number of other New Testament texts. And so one of the texts that I think will help us to get a better understanding of what Jude really means when he tells us to wait for the mercy of the Lord is from Luke chapter 12. I think we have that as well to put on the screen here. So Luke chapter 12, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service, and he will have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or the third watch and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. The cat is away, but the mice aren't playing. The master is gone, but the servants are working, expecting the master's return at any moment. In fact, the servants are working as if the master was still present, working to his standard, doing what he expects them to do. And do you see the hope-filled promise in this text? The promise of eternal life? What does it say? It says when the master returns, the servants that he finds awake, he will serve them. He will reward his servants with a feast 
Sounds kind of like that promise of a wedding between the lamb and his church, between Christ and his people. A great heavenly scene where we are dining and celebrating, not unlike a groom and his bride who have been reunited. We see from Luke that the fuller definition of this word, uh, to wait, it would not be just to wait, but to wait with an eager anticipation in order to be ready and willing to receive that which is promised. And this is Luke's encouragement to us. Every Christian is a child of the Most High God, but also a servant. We relish the opportunity to work for our Lord. No one knows the time when he'll return, just like the master who's gone to a wedding. You've been to weddings. I don't know how late these things go. People are hanging out all night. He might come back in the second watch, might be the third. Might be dusk, might be dawn. But we are at work making preparations for the master's return. But what do we prepare? We prepare ourselves. We prepare our hearts. You notice that the construction of the, of the phrase in the English in Jude is what we talked about last week, um, basically, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of the Lord, which leads to eternal life. Waiting for the mercy of the Lord that it leads to eternal life is, dependent, is a dependent clause, dependent upon the first, going back to describe or expound or explain the first. So we keep ourselves in the love of God. And how do we do that? We do that by waiting for the mercy of the Lord. And we prepare our hearts because the love of God is the thing that we need. But we're waiting expectantly. We don't throw up our feet and recline on the couch and say, well, you know, when the master's coming down the road, I'll jump up and get some stuff done. We say today, right now, this moment, I'm working, I'm preparing. The master's coming back. When we grab a hold of these promises, pleasures forevermore, realized righteousness, the end of death, they help to set our focus on eternity. They get our minds in the right place. They get our hearts right. But the better thing about these three promises in particular is that they have a fulfillment in eternal life, but they're offered to us now. These are truths that we have access to today in Christ Jesus. And so to conclude, I say this is how we wait. We wait actively. We wait expectantly. Pleasures forevermore. The true pleasure of heaven is intimacy with God. Our future destiny is to become one with him, to experience his love totally, uh, completely unadulterated. And in fact, uh, uh, um, Paul writes in Romans, he talks about how one day I will see him fully. And I see now like in a mirror, dimly like a reflection, I experience God. And it's great. But one day I will see him clearly and I will experience him fully. But we can experience him today. Despite our sense of our, uh, our, our shortcomings, and our uh, falling short, being preoccupied with the things of life that sort of jump in our face, we can experience God. We can have intimacy with him. Isn't it interesting that in this uh, chapter in Jude, or this, uh, this, this book that Jude has written, if you look at the end of verse 19, Jude describes those people who have abandoned the faith as being devoid of the Spirit. And he immediately launches into this discussion about how to uh, experience the love of God or keep yourself in the love of God and wait for, uh, wait for the mercy. And I think that that's telling because it's the Spirit, like Dylan had talked to us about last week, 
who reminds us of the love of God, who's given to us to uh, speak to our spirit. And like Jesus says right before he leaves, I promise I will never leave you nor forsake you, lo, even to the end of the age. And then a few pages later, he ascends into heaven. I'm sure the disciples were thinking, what, what's going on? He just left, right? But he also promised that I will send you a helper, a comforter. He will teach you what I have taught, and he will remind you that you are children of God. And Paul tells us in Romans that it is the Spirit who testifies with our spirit that we are children and reminds us that we have been adopted into God's family. And so pleasures forevermore today is the intimacy and the presence of the Holy Spirit offered to all. The Word tells us that God gives his Spirit liberally to all who ask, and he doesn't hold back. So press into God. Ask him for his Holy Spirit. Experience his intimacy. In fact, whatever means of grace you can find, prayer, worship, Bible study, fellowship with your brothers and sisters, you can have and you can experience pleasures forevermore today. And like the psalmist, you can say, in your presence, Lord, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Realized righteousness. The number one reason that I became a Christian is because Jesus Christ had the best answer for my shame and my guilt. It was clear to me that I couldn't live up to my own standards of what I wanted to be, being a nice person. And it was clear that God's standards were higher than mine, so I had no chance of getting anywhere close to his. But the idea that God was willing to forgive me for my sins today and in the past and in the future, and then make me whole, and remove my flaws to help me stop hurting the people I cared about. It's mind-blowing. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. Sin and death. I memorized those lines when I was 15. I've never forgotten them. Sorry, God is so good. Okay, put yourself together. It was God's plan all along to save us through Christ. So if you're burdened, like I was, like I was burdened, with the knowledge of your sin, your guilt before God, your guilt before others, you can be free. Put your trust in Jesus. Trust his promises. See his sacrifice on the cross for you. There he poured out himself and embrace his offer to wash away your sin. You can experience the forgiveness of your sin, every shortcoming, every flaw, every broken relationship today.
No, you won't be perfect tomorrow. But we're in a process. And Christ loves us through the process. He loves us right into heaven. He loves us right into who we're supposed to be, into our destiny, which is to be righteous like he is righteous. Holiness is your destiny. The end of death. <clears throat> this one's a little bit trickier because we still die. Uh, even Lazarus, miraculously raised from the grave, dies again. Which is kind of unfortunate to die twice, I guess. <laughs> but our destiny in heaven is not threatened by physical death. For those in Christ who have experienced a spiritual rebirth, Death has become merely a path to destiny. Uh, uh, a wise man once said that death is no longer our executioner, but has become our gardener, pruning us and preparing us for our most fruitful season, eternity with Christ. But we're on this side of death. How do we eagerly await a time without death? Well, I think the first thing we ought to do is we ought to realize that we have the most compassionate the most courageous response to those who are dealing with death. Because we have hope. We have hope that we will pass through death and be better for it. So whether they are facing death in the face or are looking death in the face or they lost someone that they care about, we have something to tell them, something to share with them, something that can help them. The second thing is we need to get busy getting as many people as we can to bring them into heaven. Verses 23, 22 and 23 of Jude say this. They say, have mercy on those who doubt and save others by snatching them out of the fire. It's no coincidence that Jude explicitly encourages us to help those who are doubting to believe and to save those who are struggling from future judgment. What better way to keep the reality of our eternal destiny in the forefront of our minds than by sharing it with others and inviting them into it as well. Pleasures forevermore, a realized righteousness, the end of death. Friends, Jude has given us a great task to wait expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Let us answer the call with zeal and hope in our hearts because we know that the promises are true and the future is now. If you'll take out your communication cards. <clears throat>